Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we'll scour our vinyl collection to bring you great songs by unknown artists and unknown songs by great artists. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You've come to the Internet's first, only, and best source of music from our record collection. As always, we like to start with a little bit of music trivia. Oh, you know more than I know. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. All right, Joe, are you ready for my trivia quiz today? I won't. I won't know until you start. I guess. Okay. I've got a. Uh, you know how I like to name things weird. I've got a special name for this trivia. It's called guided by voices or misguided by voices. So your job is I'm going to uh, read you the name of a song. And I want you to tell me if it is an actual Guided by Voices song or if it's some um, stuff that I just made up. Okay, this is a, this is a great idea for, for trivia. And I'm a little nervous because they have over a... Well, Robert Pollard has over a hundred releases and each of their albums has 50 songs on it. But uh, I will do my best. I think the best bet you have is me making a name so stupid you would you would think there's no way he would name a song after that. So I think, I think that's where I'm going to be tricked. <laughs> okay, here we go. Guided okay. by voices or misguided by voices? First song, 158 Years of Beautiful Sex. Uh, that is a Guided by Voices song. Correct. June Salutes You. That is a Guided by Voices song. Very good. Tactile Man of War. I think that is too. No, that is not. Oh, good one, though. <laughs> Sprung Heroes Interlude. That is. That is not. Wow, two in a row I missed. Ovarian Angel Architect. Yes. That is. Spirit Whirlpool Drano Sucker. No. That is not. Salvation Army Bacon and Eggs. No. Yes, that is, actually. Rats. What album is that on? Do you know I what album? I don't know. I just picked okay. as many crazy ones as I could find. UFO to Hitler. No. That is. Wow. <laughs> You're that guy. Yeah, it's crazy. You're not on track, Honcho. Yes. Nope. That's a that's that's I a, that's a Ryan original. After, after a hot start. I, I know. Think. It's like you don't know all thousand songs by heart. Um, all right, here you go. Pink Fingerling. Yes. No, that's a Ryan song. You're, you're killing me here. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I should have started Guided by Voices. I could name these songs. All right. Hang Mr. Kite. Yes. That is. A Number I Can Trust. Yes. That is. Congratulations, you're under sedation. No. Yes, that is. Sphinx Scores K. No. That is not. You're right. Eskimo Clockwork. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Father's Favorite Temperature. Yes. That is. And finally, the last one, Podcaster's Delicatessen Disaster. No. No, that's that's what we're experiencing right now. So I think in the end I got about 40%. Yeah, that's not bad because there's, I mean, they're nuts. The, I, I mean, I went through all of them, I, or not all of them, but they, I found a, a website with a list of all of them. And you may get this uh, this quiz again if I'm ever feeling lazy because there's so many songs. But uh, You know what? You know what? You may get this quiz too. <laughs> I invented the quiz. I I I, uh, I get uh, rights to it. I think, but hopefully, uh, maybe some people out there in uh, in podcast land are are uh, huge GBV fans and and they know all of them, and maybe some uh, people out there are huge Ryan fans and they knew uh, all my songs. 
everybody should be huge one of those fans. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. The, two, two, uh, two circles in a Venn diagram. So, exactly. all right, what do you got for me? Okay, I have an audio round. It is going to contain five short pieces of music, about 20 to 30 seconds each. I would like for you to name the band, the song, and then at the very end, after I play all five, name the theme of these songs. Very good. Okay, band, okay. song, and theme. All right, I got yes. it. Go for it. Okay. Track one. track think you know a few of them yeah okay I, i'm pretty sure i know a few of them yeah yeah i've got a i've got a few of them but uh i'll have to think about that 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 theme i went i legitimately went for for not too difficult with the audio part but i think the theme might be might be hard. okay okay yeah. well um uh we'll uh, get to those answers at the end of the show and now it's time for turntable talk everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind People stop and staring And uh, listeners know that Turntable Talk is uh, the part of the episode where we go deep into researching some topic relating to music that really interests us and um, we switch off who does it. This week is my week. And we uh, kind of talk about it and go in depth and, and uh, hopefully research a story or something that, that you all might be interested in uh, and some of the details of the story. Today, for my turntable talk, I am um, delving into the relationship between 
two heroes of their field and two um, two people that uh, I think both Joe and I really uh, love and respect, and I know at least one of them that we really bonded over. So today I'm going to be talking about the tumultuous relationship between Lester Bangs and Lou Reed. Good one. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's an interesting. They're they. They have a, both a mutual respect and probably more so a mutual loathing for each other. And like I said, they're heroes in their fields. I mean, Lester Bangs is probably considered one of the best, if not the best, modern music critic. And Lou Reed, of course, is a giant. They're both incredibly smart. They can both be incredibly nasty. And so they have this fascinating relationship. And I think there's a lot of similarities between their work. They both have lives that revolved around substances, at least for a while. And they both cared a lot about the uh, the perception of their work and they both were very fierce and passionate and had big egos and um at least from the lester bangs to lou reed it's it's definitely a, a study on hero worship and i want to start before i kind of delve into everything with a lester bangs quote um from cream uh, magazine he said a hero is a goddamn stupid thing to have in the first place and a block to anything you might want to accomplish on your own and I just kind of want you to you know, just kind of think about think on that for a second as we kind of go through this this whole story, because I think the the hero aspect of and this goes for me too because I think definitely I see Lou Reed and always have since since I you know fell in love with the Velvet Underground as a hero and this almost untouchable person. So I think Lester Banks got a lot of that same sort of stuff, except he got to delve more into it. So they have kind of similar backgrounds. Banks was born in 48. He, to, uh, his parents were Jehovah's Witnesses, so strict upbringing. His dad died in a house fire when he was 11. And so um, about, that, about that time, he started to rebel and, and found a lot, of, um, a lot of comfort and acceptance in music uh, and drugs. He was a big fan of cough medicine. He was kind of a gonzo-style gonzo writer, and he liked to break you know, artists down into their to the humans and and um he got really he got going in rolling stone magazine he got a um they solicited writers to submit reviews and he got a kind of a nasty review or a negative review i should say of mc5's kick out the jams and rolling stones and he went on from there to work for rolling stone and cream uh reed was born in, in 1942 to a jewish household uh, also very strict and of course uh famously his parents made him do electroshock therapy for behavior and mood swings and homosexual tendencies. Um, I think the songs Kill Your, Kill Your Sons, uh, that was about that, and he's talked about that a lot. It's pretty, pretty well known. So he moved to New York eventually and went to, he went to Syracuse and uh, moved to New York City. He worked for Pickwick Records, making a bunch of kind of one-off dance records. Eventually started the Velvet Underground, which, of course, is um, – an amazing band you know they're avant-garde focus on darkness and subcultures and decadence and drugs and sex was definitely hugely influential on everybody um including including bangs who uh particularly wrote about how much he loved the nihilism of white light white heat in fact he tried to get the white light white heat published in rolling stone his his uh, review of it but rolling stone didn't publish it he, they did publish his um his review of the third velvet underground album which uh at one point he says Perhaps the most important lesson uh, the Velvet, of the Velvet Underground is the power of the human soul to transcend its darker levels. And so, clearly, Lester Banks had uh, a total uh, love for the Velvet Underground. So, continuing the story, Lester first met Lou in 69, 
he saw the Velvet Underground, and he tried to go backstage and engage with the band, and apparently they were fairly dismissive, especially Lou. So that was kind of the first encounter he had with them. But he still held the band in such high regard and Lou Reed in such regard. And, and he continued this, and, and then Lou started putting out solo records. And Lester really loved the first solo record, uh, which came out in, what, 71? Where the whole thing kind of started to turn is when Transformer came out in 72. And so that brings us to these famous interviews. And I would definitely recommend, if you haven't already, they're online or you can, Lester has books out, read, read the interviews between, that Lester writes about with Lou Reed. They're fast and they're funny and they're smart and they're very real. I think Lester Banks does a good job of kind of making it a real good and bad both ways of Lou Reed. And again, it's that kind of that hero worship. He, he, he really saw him as a hero and he started disappointing him. And so the first, um, uh, there's, there's a quote where I think he says something to the extent of Lou Reed is the guy that gave dignity and, and poetry and rock and roll to smack and speed and homosexuality, sadomasochism, murder, misogyny, stumblebum passivity and suicide, and then proceeded to belie all of his achievements and return to the mire by turning the whole thing into a bad joke. And I think that sums up Lester Banks' articles about Lou Reed. He was this god of music to him, and then he kind of turned it all into a joke. And I can't, I can't do justice in describing the, the, the interviews. The first one, the name alone is perfect. Deaf Mute in a Telephone Booth, A Perfect Day with Lou Reed. Ryan, isn't that also a Guided by Voices song? <laughs> it, I'm sure it is. It, it's probably three Guided by Voices songs. So, um, but that appeared uh, uh, in Cream Magazine right after Transformer came out. And he does the, the thing as far as giving Luke credit and talks about, you know, some of the good things and, and you know, how he, he really admires Lou. But then he kind of mocks Lou for hanging out with David Bowie and for posing as a glam rocker and for creating this flat, dualistic perspective on gay culture. He eventually called Transformer a comic strip that transcended itself. Uh, and so he, he, he really laid into Lou Reed. And it, it's, it's weird because you can read the disappointment and as they discuss you know he really he really kind of puts Lou Reed to the test and Lou comes back at him and, and Lou's notorious for give, being hard on interviewers anyways but I think he was especially just not going to give up anything and, and, and so like I said I, I can't do it justice I just kind of want to give you all a, a synopsis of this relationship because it's very interesting but you really should go read these articles they're, they're entertaining and, and great the, the one that was probably the most famous and, and, and also just uh, something that definitely worth reading is the second interview, which was called Let Us Now Praise the Famous Death Dwarves, or How I Slugged It Out with Lou Reed and Stayed Awake. It appeared in Cream in 75, and basically Lou Reed and Lester Bang sit on a couch after a show and argue for till five in the morning. They yell at each other and argue, and they argue about amphetamine formulas they argue about the current music scene they argue about lou reed's transvestite girlfriend at the time they argue about the background music which is herbie hancock and part of it's written like a boxing match i mean there's definitely an adversarial feel to these things so uh 
in the peak moment of the whole interview, at one point Lester challenges Lou to remove his sunglasses. And Lou does, and they stare at each other. And Lester asks him this question, which he says he's been pondering for months, which again is sort of like the question, I think, as Lester has his personal feelings about Lou and as he's talking to this person he admires and who's disappointed him. He says, do you ever resent people for the way that you have lived your life out, what they might think of as the dark of their lives for them, vicariously in your music or your life? And that question got me thinking because I think me, who never dabbled in this darkness of life, definitely found some connection to that through Velvet Underground's music. You know, I found them when I was in high school and going through stuff like I'm sure a lot of people did. And you feel cool. You feel dark and rebellious listening to the Velvet Underground. Lester Banks personally felt this way, that he's lived vicariously through Lou Reed, and now he's sitting here and he's seeing this kind of um, reflection, this fake uh, show of himself, and he's getting to interview him. Interesting question. Of course, Lou's not going to answer any question straight, but uh, it's worth reading and reading kind of in, into that. Um, another interesting part of that article, I mentioned this a little bit, uh, Lester rips into Rachel, which was the transsexual lover that Lou wrote uh, most of Coney Island Baby about. And apparently this just was the dividing line for Lou from Lester. Lou just would not respond to Lester um, because of this in later years. And there's a Robert Quinn interview where he says that he uh, he's the one who told Lou about Lester's death. And Lou went on for 45 minutes to talk about how much of a jerk Lester was. I'm sure he didn't use the word jerk, but and it, particularly about that treatment of Rachel in the article. And in fairness, Lester said he did express regret about how he wrote about her. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty mean and nasty. Uh, again, I'm not doing any justice to the, to the wonderful writing of Lester Bangs or the, the great um, back and forth between the two, but definitely checking out, worth checking out that article. The last line, which is great, is, I never met a hero I didn't like, but then again, I never met a hero. But then, maybe I wasn't looking for one. And so you can definitely see this reflection of Lester Bangs on who, who Lou Reed is. So Lester Bangs never, never interviewed again. He did write some reviews. In particular, he wrote about metal machine music, um, which we talked about a little bit last, last episode. And he wrote an article, How to Succeed in Torture Without Really Trying, or Louis Come Home, All is Forgiven. Another great name for an article. And he... Um, he writes several articles about metal machine music, about one called The Greatest Album Ever Made, where he details 17 reasons why metal machine music is a good album. He talks about it being a hangover cure, a guaranteed lease breaker. He talks about how his hermit crab loves dancing to it. He talks about it like it's a vitamin that blows all the bad shit out of your brains. He says it's a capulation of Lou's soul. So they're <laughs> really funny articles about metal machine music. He's probably the only critic who really went, went on the record saying, well, this is such a good album. But with backhanded, with backhanded compliments. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, nothing, nothing's ever straight. Uh, there's definitely more loathing than respect, but at the same time, I think Lester Banks genuinely appreciated that, and he's somebody who would probably appreciate a big, you know, fu to record companies or whatever Metal Machine Music was. I actually was going to write about Metal Machine Music, and then I kind of got sidetracked by this because I just so interesting to me. I'm all, almost done. I promise, people. <laughs> so in '76. Bangs basically ceased criticism of Lou Reed. Uh, Peter Laffner, who is a, another critic who also was obsessed with Reed, um, died. And in uh, the obituary, uh, he promised never to write 
about Lou Reed again. Uh, and he said, it's the, the death of Peter Laffner was the end of an era for me, an era of intense worship of nihilism, nihilism and death tripping in all marketable forms. It may be time to begin things in terms of heroes again, of love instead of hate, of energy instead of violence, of strength instead of cruelty, of action instead of reaction. So I think Lou Reed represented this time where he focused on the nihilism and the darkness, and that was captured in Lou's music and their relationship, whatever it was. Um, and he was moving on, and he tried to get sober and, and some other things. And, and, you know, very similar to what Lou did eventually, too. He did write about Lou, Lester wrote about Lou one more time. It was a review of The Bells, which he dedicated to Peter Laffner, even though he said he wasn't going to write about Lou. He liked the record, and he... he um, he still took some backhanded um, comments and, and took down Lou a little bit, but he still said very nice things about the record and about Lou. He said, he gave us reason to think there might be meaning to be found in this world beyond all the nihilism. It's an album about love and dread and redemption through the strange commingling of the two. So Bangs died in 82 of an overdose of cough medicine and Valium. And he's definitely the critics, one of the best music critics of our time. And uh, any of his writings worth looking into, especially Lou Reed articles, but, uh, you know, his humanness and his self-reference and his humor and his way to be literative, but reference pop culture was to me un unsurpassed. Going back to that first comment about a hero is a stupid thing to have because it blocks what you might accomplish on your own. I think Lester and the, and the examination of the relationship with Lou kind of really takes that to another level. Like I said, it gives me pause to think about my own hero worship and people that I think so much of and and how we're all people. We all have these things, all this this humanness, and it's 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 an interesting reflection on that. And so, not to get too philosophical about it, but yeah, that's that's about it. I just wanted to say I got uh, some information from Lester's collections. There's a couple of them, and then there's a, a biography called Let It Burt, uh, Let It Blurt, by Jim Dare. Derogatus? I don't know how to say his name. Derogatus, I think? Yeah, or I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I say it different every There's time. also somebody who put out a paper on the two of them named Sarah McCarthy online, um, and that was a great paper and kind of insightful and helpful and helped me kind of frame things. So I kind of want to give a shout-out to her because I did use that a lot too. So um, not much more I can say about it, but definitely one of the great relationships in rock and one that went um, way beyond the surface, like so many critical and artists. You know, artistic endeavors do yeah so yeah thank you that was that was fantastic i was actually going to comment on let it blur it's one of my favorite biographies it's really good he, he led a very interesting life um and died way too young also if you uh that peter laffner by the way uh -huh. for everybody anybody who doesn't know him he was part of the cleveland kind of yeah he, was he in, in the 70s no well sort of he was in a rocket from the tombs mm -hmm. with with David Thomas, uh, Rocket from the Tomb split up and became Perubu and um, the Dead Dead Boys. Dead Boys, yeah. The other ones. yeah. And yeah, so actually, yes, he was in Perubu after that, right before he died. Uh, that's, yeah. And he, one of his songs, I think it's called Cinderella Backstreet. I don't have it in front of me, so I'm hoping that's right. Part of the lines from that, or the first few lines from that, are used in a Wilco song, which is really good. Uh, so huh. it's... Again, I, it's on the album being there, and it's, it's misunderstood is the name of the song. I know uh, that song. So, it's yeah. the The very first two lines are from that. Back in my old neighborhood. The cigarettes taste so good. Yeah. yeah. Is that it? That's yep. 
Yep, that's exactly right. Oh, that's oh, Peter Lauper. Interesting. There's one release of, uh, it was a CD-only re- release of just kind of his bedroom recorders, basically demos, and it's, it's huh. really good. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. I knew. I, I, I knew he was in Perubu or, or related to the Cleveland scene, but uh, I was researching kind of the other stuff. I probably should have gone more into that. But um, the other thing I think is kind of interesting is, you know, the role of the critic. They talk about how it's so easy to kind of tear down things. How it's easier to be a critic than an artist. I think Lester Bangs, the way he did his criticism was was so far above a lot of other things that it, it became, kind of became an art form in itself. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Um, Absolutely. And I think that that's shown no, no, no better than with the Lou Reed stuff. Meeting Lou Reed in that way in the early 70s and then um, being disappointed by that because of what he had done before. It's sort of like when you're a child and your parents are super perfect and they're unbeatable. And then as you get older, you see weaknesses and flaws and you don't like it and it's disappointing. But then as you get older still, you realize that that's how everyone is and it's it's perfect. It's how it should be. Absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> I couldn't have couldn't have said it better. I mean, he it's 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 this level of maturation. You know, like I said, you, you idolize and then you you pity and then you understand, you know, it's this this, you know, circle of life. Um, so, yeah. And he just sort of vomited out those feelings. <laughs> yes, very, very cleverly explained that. Um, yeah, he changed. He, he completely changed the way people wrote about music. There's just no no doubt about that. And he was the most important rock critic maybe ever because of what he did, despite what um, one person we don't like, Robert Christow, says about him and, and his writing, uh, that uh, Lester Bangs did so much. And people have since taken that, and it's almost in... It's in nearly every review is now basically uh, Lester Banks either a tribute or a parody or whatever it is, whether it's intentional or not. Um, but people have figured out how to make it easier, which is unfortunate. But when people are writing about how music affects them emotionally or psychologically, it's because of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely definitely see that. Anyways, that's my turntable talk, and um, uh, definitely contact us if you have any more uh, comments or thoughts on it, because. You know, we're trying to trying to get our opinion out there. But uh, thanks for the time, and I think it is time to listen to some music. I'm going to go ahead and start off with a track by a fairly unknown artist, though he, he wrote a lot of big hits. And it is a song that, that I absolutely, absolutely love, uh, which is probably why I'm playing it and why I'm playing all of these. So I'm going to go ahead and play this right now, and we'll talk about it right after. That is the captain of Alpha Centauri. We must be out of our minds. Though we are shipmates and bound for tomorrow, everyone here's flying blind. But we must believe in magic. We must believe in the guiding hand. Cause if you believe in magic, 
you have the universe at your command. Mad is the crew bound for Alpha Centauri. Dreamers and poets and clowns. But bold is the ship bound for Alpha Centauri. And nothing can turn it around. But we must believe in magic. We must believe in the guiding hand. Cause if you believe in magic, you have the universe at your That was Jack Clement. Uh, some people know him as Cowboy Jack Clement with a song called We Must Believe in Magic. It's off of his album, All I Want to Do in Life, the first album he did, first full album he did from 1978. It was on Electro Records. Jack Clement, uh, as some of you may know, a lot, of, a lot of people don't. He was a huge, hugely successful songwriter. He wrote Ballad of Teenage Queen for Johnny Cash, Guess Things Happen That Way. He did a song off of that, uh, that goofy Johnny Cash album. Uh, the one on the right is on the left is the song that's really fun. He produced the original Ring of Fire, uh, partially written by June. It was just, he did so much, mostly with writing it. Tons of people recorded his songs. Dolly Parton, Ray Charles, Carl Perkins, lots and lots of people. Um, and he even produced, uh, he produced records by, I think, by Town Chain Sam Waylon, Gen- Waylon Jennings, if I'm right. Uh, yeah, he did... Uh... Dream My Dreams. There's, There's a go. picture of him on the back cover. I'm, I'm positive. Perfect. Um, great, great guy. It seems like a great guy. Everybody seemed to like him and enjoy him. Uh, the song itself, I don't... It didn't take off, obviously. I don't even know if it was a single. There isn't much isn't much interest or isn't much information about it. Um, his albums, he only did a few studio albums. This just happened to be the second song on, on one that I happen to have, and I, I think it's great. Yeah, I think you played it for me one time in your basement and I went and got it probably within a couple weeks. The whole album is it's really kind of a great oddball country record. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to describe that. That song is a pretty good picture of what it sounds like. And if you know me, you will know that um, I do uh, force people down to the basement to listen to music. Yep. Yep. All the time. It's not creepy. <laughs> okay. We, 
It, it wasn't. Don't know. We <laughs> All right. go ahead. Is it my turn? All right, we're gonna move right along. Okay. All right. Um, this unknown song by a great band. I think I'm just gonna go ahead and play it, and you'll probably figure out who the band is, and then we'll come back and talk about it. So here we go. I was thinking of the compromise when I saw the beauty in your eyes and hiding something in me, so I say so. That, of course, was Dexie's Midnight Runners with a song called Listen to This, or sometimes it's called I Love You, Listen to This. And that's from their third album, Don't Stand Me Down, which released in 85 on Mercury Records. Dixie's Midnight Runners uh, is, is uh, pretty much known for, for one song in America, which, of course, is Come on Eileen. In UK and Europe, they are held to much um they're, they're held much higher esteem because they started as kind of a north northern soul pop outfit and they're known for changing their styles like their fashion styles as well as their music styles the first album which is awesome um searching for the young soul rebels they're all kind of dressed like 
Sailors, I guess. And it's just great, soulful pop songs. Of course, they switched and they kind of wore the uh, uh, hobo gypsy rags for Turaya, which is the second second record, which has Come On Eileen. And of course, that blew up and we've all heard that song a million times. It's a great song, but it's been safe to say, I think it's been been played played out. Really underrated band because they sort of, that having that big hit sort of hurt them critically um, because people who people didn't really give them much give them much notice I think like because they thought that they were just sort of a, a pop one hit wonder band but they're on they had some really good albums yeah they they did and that's the perfect kind of lead into what where this song comes in uh, come on and lead made them such huge stars that they took a long time to to come out with this third album. Uh, Kevin Rollin was the band leader, and they went from a uh, 10-piece from the Come On Eileen era and to a four-piece for their their album, Don't Stand Me Down. And that came out three years after. They recorded. They spent two years recording and mixing the record, and it, for all intents and purposes, it was just a disaster. It was when the record came out, there was very little promotion, Kevin Rowland didn't want to release a single, so by the time the record label eventually talked him into releasing a single, it, it was kind of dead on arrival, and it broke up the band. Uh, at one point, the record label was holding the master tapes for ransom, <laughs> and there's a funny story, I don't know if it's true, of Kevin Rowland like, stealing the tapes and snatching them and running outside, <laughs> and the guy who was supposed to be driving away went out for a cigarette or wanted to go get a candy bar or something and locked the door. <laughs> so he got there and he's trying to open the door with these master tapes. And then somebody from Mercury Records came out and said, no, you got to give those back. <laughs> they also thought the tapes were lost in a fire, but it turned out to be the office above where the tapes were. So <laughs> it's kind of got a, a, uh, a weird legacy, this Don't Stand Me Down record. I said they switched styles. They'd switched into like this preppy style where they're all wearing suits and the album itself is is really strange, and it was panned when it first came out, but it's gotten, it, it's critically held now. I think people have kind of realized this is a really fun, great pop, blue-eyed soul record. Every song, except the one I played, has these conversations between Roll, uh, Kevin Rowland and the guitarist, uh, Billy Adams, where they just kind of talk for a while. Or they'll talk over a verse, or they'll talk over a chorus. And when I say talk, I mean conversing about whatever. And it, it's it's very off-putting at first. It kind of works eventually once you get used to it, but it's, it's kind of challenging and messy. The song I played, uh, listen to this. Like I said, they changed it to I Love You for different reissues. It's probably the most straightforward pop song on the record. And really, in my opinion, it could have been a hit. It could have been a great single. It's got sewing horns, stopping uh, drums. The singing is great. This is This is one of those cases where like Joe said earlier, fame kind of hurt them and Kevin Rollin being a weirdo <laughs> kind of hurt them too. He's, he was very strange. He, he kind of kept his band members under tight formation. He made them exercise and go out jogging together and he wouldn't let them drink or do drugs. Definitely a weird band and a band that's worth looking into. If, if all you know is come on Eileen, their, their stuff is really good. And I, and I love that song. So Dexy's Midnight Runners. I love you. Listen to this. All right, and now we're going to swing back to America here, and this song is called Sam by uh, Pisces. Mm -hmm. 
So that song was uh, Sam by Pisces. Uh, Pisces was a psychedelic rock band formed in Rockford, Illinois in 67. And they only had two singles and they recorded an album's worth of unreleased material. It was just kind of an unknown psychedelic band. And then in 2009, the Numero Group, which is a Chicago label that's mostly known for releasing soul type stuff, soul reissues, they kind of put their singles and some of the unreleased stuff together and they put out an album called A Lovely Sight, which is compiles most of the Pisces song from the studio sessions. And it, it did pretty well. I mean, I think people people kind of hopped on board. I mean, still not very well known, of course, to the masses, but uh, it did real well. The core member were two guys, uh, Paul DeVinti and Jim Crane, who you know were playing in bar bands, and then they heard the Beatles, like so many bands did, want to do more psychedelic and studio tricks. And they were actually pretty good at it for good at that stuff for you know being from rockford and they played in bands that played a lot with fuse who would later turn into cheap trick who was a much much uh, greater known band from also from rockford i think they have a day named after them in illinois pisces does not have a day named after them as far as i know so um <laughs> but they made a studio uh, they had a studio and they had this uh 17-year-old girl, Linda Bruner, and she came in to take guitar lessons, and they heard her sing in that, so they ended up recording some of the songs with her, and so they recorded about four songs with her, which are by far and away the best songs that they recorded, and one of them was, of course, Sam, 
And so uh, the, not much is known about Bruner, um, the, the singer. Uh, she, <laughs> there's something in the master note, uh, the, the liner notes of the record that says that she's on the run from check fraud and that was the last they heard of her. But she, she had this awesome, boozy, soulful voice. And that combined with kind of the Beatles studio trickery makes Sam this great, weird, psychedelic song. It's, it's, it's got the, the kind of moody organs and the, the flanging drums and just a really cool song, which I hope you all enjoyed. All right, you got a unknown artist for us? I have no. The last one, so the Jack Clement was my unknown artist. Just oh, okay. Because, yeah. Because so he's my, not known. My known artist, I'm going to go ahead and just tell it, this is Everybody's going to know this immediately. So it's Joe Strummer with a song called Trash City, and here it is. All right. In Trash City on Party City, that's Party Avenue. 
so again, that's that's a song called Trash City by Joe Strummer, and we'll go into this just a little bit, kind of weird. So in 1988, there was a movie that that came out uh, called Permanent Record, and okay. it had a huge impact on me. It's probably a terrible movie and probably has not held up well at all. It uh, but it had a big impact on me, and I refuse to watch it now because I don't want to be disappointed. That would be my, uh, it would be like talking to Lou Reed after Transformer if you've loved <laughs> Velvet Underground. Uh, so that would be my Lester Bangs, but I'm uh, not as bright. So that album had a soundtrack that really got me into a bunch of other songs and bands. So the album itself, the soundtrack, was produced by Joe Strummer. And he had this song as the lead track. It's uh, Trash City. I went and got the record. I still have it. Trash City, that song, I think it's so catchy. And it has been somewhere in my head since 1988. (laughs) I absolutely love it. It, But the album itself, the the soundtrack, got me into a band called The Godfathers. Uh, They have a song on there called Because I Said So, which really got me into one of their albums. And another song of theirs that I loved then called Birth, School, Work, Death, which was really good. They had a... A Strangler song was on there. It was a cover of the Kinks All Day and All the Night. Uh, Lou Reed was on there. The Bodines, who uh, were ended up being sort of embarrassing, but they had some fun stuff in the beginning. So it was a, a really good soundtrack for a movie that I happened to like a lot, though I think it's probably terrible. Anyway, that's that's my song. It wasn't put on any other Joe Strummer album. It's I think it's wonderful. It's real catchy, and I wish it had been a huge hit and everybody would have would have purchased it. So he could have been famous yet again as a solo artist rather than kind of just making great albums that nobody seemed to listen to. Yeah, he 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 he, he kept chugging. You know, he really didn't seem to be too too worried about that, which is no. perfect for him. You know, you so, know, I heard. I heard a story, uh, so there's this myth, uh, or it's a, a story that went around that sort of, uh, I'll tell you whether it's a myth or not. So there's a story going around that went around a long time ago that Joe Strummer ran in a marathon, either in London or Paris, I don't, I don't remember where the story is, and it may change, in a chicken outfit. Now, <laughs> completely, so nobody knew him because he was wearing a, a chicken outfit. Uh-huh. Now, <laughs> that part is a myth, <laughs> but just so you know, Joe Strummer actually did run a marathon. He finished in like four hours and 20 minutes, and he did it without ever having practice. Like, he didn't train in any way practice. He didn't wow. train. He just ran a marathon. I think it was the London Marathon, and he did really well. So the myth is, if anybody ever tells you that Joe Strummer ran a marathon in a chicken outfit, part of that is true. Wow. But, so um, there you go. There's your extra trivia for the day. Is there is there some sort of chicken suit story that it's getting confused with? Or okay, so there was a right before. From <laughs> I what I remember you know of this, from what I remember of this story is there was a period of time right before Combat Rock came out where the band was just about to break up. Uh, it was things were not going well, and it, I, the manager um, told Joe Strummer to just get out of the country, go take a break somewhere, just disappear for a little while. And then the myth comes in there where he disappeared and ran somehow and ran a marathon wearing a chicken outfit, so nobody knew it was him. But <laughs> that didn't actually happen. He did disappear. Nobody could find him for almost like, oh, I don't know how long it was, whether it was a few months or a year, but nobody knew exactly where he was. But that's not when he ran the marathon, I don't believe. But, <laughs> but he just sort of disappeared for a while. Uh, and then came back. That's great. Yeah, I don't know how people decided it was a a chicken outfit. 
at all. Well, that, I mean, if, if we're talking about before Combat Rock, that's, you know, the height of the San Diego chicken craze. I mean, that it just kind of makes sense. It That's true. Though, yeah. Like, yeah I, I, I think everybody, all sorts of rock stars were wearing chicken, you know, suits. Yes, or, if they weren't wearing them, they were biting the heads off. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. They were either chopping their heads off, pulling them off, or were wearing them. All right. Well, uh, that's our song, so let's... Uh, Let's answer some trivia. Okay, so here we go. We're gonna. I'm gonna go ahead and play these tracks one more time, and I'm gonna start those off right now. Track one. Track two. Track four. So those are my five songs. This this may be the easiest quiz I've put out there so far, though there is a theme. All right. I... Okay. I think I know. Mo- I think I know most of them. Uh, the yes. theme it may be throwing me a little bit. Okay. Uh, first song is Venus and Furs by the Velvet Underground. Okay. The second song is Day Tripper by the Beatles. Okay. The the third track is I think. Um, the faces, mm, I think it's Stay With Me. Okay, yep, that's it. Let's see, the fourth track, you confused, that was The Modern Lovers, um, uh, Government Center. Yep, the fast version. Okay. Yep. And the fifth, and the fifth track was, uh, gosh, you've played that song for me. I don't. I, okay. I'm not going to get it. That one but is. I think. Go ahead. They had a bigger hit with uh, "Town Called Malice." This one was not a hit. So. Oh, that's the the jam. The jam. Yep, with a song yeah. called "Ghosts." So. Okay. What do you think the theme is? Venus, uh, Velvet Underground, I, Venus Furs, Beatles, Day Tripper, Faces, Stay with Me, Modern Lovers, Government Center, Fast Version. 
jam ghosts. I think it's that the um, they got bigger after they were done, or maybe the, their lead singer was more famous after the bands broke up. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, Lou nice, Reed, nice and easy. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, Velvet Underground with Lou Reed, obviously, or John Cale. So there's a tie-in with your topic, which I didn't know about. So we didn't we didn't mean for that to happen. We're just huge Lou Reed fans. Yeah, it's probably happened a lot. Beatles yeah. with with either really. Really, almost all four, though I am not going to count Ringo Starr because uh, Klaatu Barada Nick Dogg is a terrible <laughs> Faces with uh, Rod Stewart, Bonham Lovers, Jonathan Richman, um, and Jam with Paul Weller. Though I don't know if Paul Weller was ever more famous than the Jam. I don't think he had any bigger hits, but he did He did a lot of solo yeah. albums. And he, and he was yeah, famous. I think people know Paul, Paul Weller. I mean, it's, you know, Jonathan Richman probably in that same category, you know. Yeah. Um, Certainly, probably more financial uh, success, uh, probably because they didn't have to pay those other band guys. The good quiz, good quiz. Um, that was a nice, nice light one for my brain. Yeah, it wasn't guided by voices songs. That, <laughs> you were, that was, was kind of happy with that, that that quiz theme. Thought that was pretty good. Um, I was trying to think of other bands I could do that with. Uh, I thought about the Mountain Goats because they have so many songs from those early records, but I think you would get all those. Those I think I would do really well on. Yeah. Uh, Guided by Voices, I really like them a lot, but I probably only listened to like forty of their albums. So yeah, it's yeah. I mean, once you get once you get past the you know the the twenty five you like, the other seventy five are kind of like good tracks here and there. Anyways, but uh, that's been our podcast. Uh, thanks for for hanging out for a while. Hope you uh, heard some songs that you like and and learned some stuff and and uh, got some got some quiz quiz action going and as always we like to say please support your uh your local record store support the artists you love go to shows buy records yeah and uh hit us up on on uh social media do we got social media we have a facebook page uh please like it uh let us know what's let us know what's going on whether you love us or hate us we don't care just to interact with us we're happy to do that and we have a we have a website uh, just just if you love us though i really don't want to know if you hate yeah, us. yeah well we're going to get plenty of that. Unless it's constructive. We're going to get plenty of that without actually pushing it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just just keep it to yourself. Uh, but, but thanks for listening, and uh, we hope you uh, you hope you hope enjoy it. And, and like I said, give us, uh, like Joe said, give us some feedback. We're really trying to make the show something that people enjoy. And uh, if you do enjoy it, tell some of your music-loving friends, and we'll uh, see you next time. Thank you all very much. And... It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.